Welcome to the World of Horror Special Edition Quinisode, episode 99. I'm Christina. And I'm Quinn. This is the podcast where Quinn and I have a conversation about a work of classic horror and what we enjoy and want to spotlight to the greater WoHo community. For this Quinisode, we are looking at John Frankenheimer's 1962 Cold War chiller, The Manchurian Candidate. Disclaimers for adult language and heavy spoilers. Let's move on to our first segment, Christina and Quinn chat. Hi, Quinn. How's it going? Hi, Christina. It's going well, I suppose. How are you? (laughs) Well, it's kind of springtime here in North Carolina on the last day of February. Yeah, they say they call this fake spring. Oh, is that what they call it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember when I was trying to get my husband, I'm not married anymore, but I was um, 24 years ago, and I was trying to get that guy to come down to North Carolina or want to move down to North Carolina. And so we came down in February. There was snow on the ground, but one day it was like 72 degrees. So I was like, what else do you want? <laughs> like <laughs> coming from Wisconsin. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's something you don't ever get. I mean, you might get like a 50 degree day, but you're not going to get a 70-something degree day. Nuh-uh. Yeah, so it's warm here, and it's like the pollinating is happening. Yeah. (laughs) The pollinating. And I got this app that tracks pollen because I'm really (laughs) cool, and (laughs) it's at... Uh, very high level today, which yeah. I look at it and I see the level and I say, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'll go for a walk after we're done here, but um, I'm not as sensitive to it as you are. You're like, you're like super sensitive to pollen. I know. I don't like that I am. It's not something that I like about my changing body, but It is what it is, and um, I've been told I have no allergies after being allergy tested. Uh, So who knows what the hell is wrong with me. But, yeah, I am pretty sensitive to the pollen. And it sucks because there are these days like this where it's, like, so gorgeous. And I actually have a car that has, like, a sunroof, moonroof, sunroof, because you can open it and, like, completely open it. And so I was driving earlier, and I always leave the window part open, but I don't often open the window (laughs) to the outside. But I I wanted to because it was so nice, and it was so lovely and fun. And then when I closed it and got out of the car and into a place, I was like, oh, what did I do to myself? It was like a fast track to pollen. I'm sorry you're so sensitive to pollen. <laughs> That's okay. Let's not talk about pollen anymore. All right. So The Manchurian Candidate was directed by John Frankenheimer. The screenplay was by George Axelrod, and it was based on The Manchurian Candidate, a 1959 novel by Richard Condon. It stars Frank Sinatra. Ever heard of him? <laughs> Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, Angela Lansbury, Henry Silva, and James Gregory. 
The cinematography was by Lionel Linden. The release date was October 24th, 1962, and it has a running time of 126 minutes. And I watched it on Tubi. I watched it on Tubi Tubi. <laughs> okay, so I shamelessly stole the plot synopsis from filmsite.org. Thank you, filmsite.org. And then, because I'm old school, I printed out all 17 pages. <laughs> I hope that you are deciding to read all 17 pages. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of great commentary in the film site synopsis, but I will try to refrain from what this writer inserted and just, you know, so we can insert our own thoughts. Okay. But this film begins with a title, Korea 1952, during the Korean War, and we meet Sergeant Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, and Captain Bennett Marco. And they are serving overseas and the sergeant is very unlikable because he breaks up a bunch of carousing <laughs> of his troops in this Korean brothel bar. And uh, the men just are like, you know, contemptuous of him. It's just our Raymond, our lovable Sergeant Shaw. I'm afraid our St. Raymond, he don't approve. But then <sighs> They are led by this traitorous local interpreter named Chunjin, who is an American. <laughs> um, wait, that might be confusing. Okay, well, okay. So <laughs> the part of the local interpreter, Chunjin, is played by an American named Henry Silva, which is terrible. And I wish that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> because he's got just this. I mean, it's not it's not Mickey Rooney bad, but it's pretty bad. I mean, in terms of his accent. Yeah, it is not Mickey Rooney bad. I mean, I assume we're talking breakfast at Tiffany's, but yeah. like, it almost is worse in that I think he could f in ways like fool you that he is not American, but. I don't know. It's almost worse in that manner. Well, I looked, I saw in the ending credits, there was like a dialect coach. And so um, I don't think this person did a very good job no. because um, Lawrence Harvey just sounds like an Englishman. And this American dude just has this really, I don't know, awkward Asian accent. Right. But anyway, okay, the yeah. Americans are advised in the movie to walk in a single file line and they are ambushed, knocked unconscious and taken away by helicopter into Manchuria to be held captive. And then we get the credits. And um, I was just waiting for Angela Lansbury's name. And I think it says co-starring Angela Lansbury. Oh. But it should have said featuring the yeah. goddess that is Angela featuring Lansbury. Blow your mind role played by <laughs> Angela Lansbury. And there is a making of that I saw, well, it was like an interview with her specifically on um her part in this film. And uh 
I think it was on YouTube. People should check it out. Anyway, so then we're like, as the audience, we're like, what is happening? Like, we thought we were in South Korea in this war, but now our boys have been taken somewhere. And then we go back to the U.S. and there's a big parade and Sergeant Shaw is returning home a war hero. And he's met with this like huge patriotic crowd and people are waving signs and all this stuff. And um, we understand that he has been decorated as a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. And so one of the generals is like, how do you feel, Captain Shaw? And he goes, like Captain Idiot in Astounding Science Comics. (laughs) And his mother is there, Mrs. Iceland. And she's 37 years old, Angela Lansbury, and Lawrence Harvey is uh, 34. <laughs> so that's a little bit uh, odd casting. But I'm, I, I, to be honest, I never knew that until, you know, recently. But I just yeah, took I didn't it. Either. It didn't strike me. And then when I heard that there was such a small difference, it was sort of just like, I, I don't know. It didn't strike me as I didn't think about it, you know, but had I thought about it more, I would have thought, oh, my God, she's so gorgeous. She looks beautiful. I wonder how old she is. She can't be much older than him, you know, and would I had I have gone down that road, I would have gone down that road, but I didn't for some reason and then saw that and thought, whoa. <laughs> and I think that Frank Sinatra wanted Lucille Ball, I think, for the part, um, but Frankenheimer insisted on Angela Lansbury. Thank the gods yeah. of film. She's there and her husband, Senator John Iceland, is also there. He's uh, sort of a right-wing, uh, buffoonish, McCarthy-ish vice presidential candidate. And they push through the crowd and they're trying to get a lot of uh, publicity and to capitalize on that publicity <laughs> there's like this this makeshift like banner that's put above them and it says um john johnny iceland's boy <laughs> <laughs> and shaw is really pissed off about that um and and he's just really angry with his mother turning the page <laughs> <laughs> thank you film site yeah oh go film site they're so great yeah um I love, I love Johnny Iceland in this. Like, I love that character. I mean, he's so fun to watch. He's terrible, of course, but he is a lot of fun to watch. And it's really fun to see the dynamic between he and Angela Lansbury because it is just beautiful. It's beautifully done. Yeah, really. It's, I think, I think everybody is cast pretty well in this. Yeah. Aside from Henry Silva. Yeah. Um, just a little more voiceover about, how his heroic action was corroborated by everybody, the surviving members of his patrol. Yeah. Well, I mean, Captain Bennett also agrees that he he was a hero. He displayed valor above and beyond the call of duty and did single-handedly save the lives of nine members of his patrol, blah, 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 blah. So there's this, this is the story that they've all been, given. It's all the same story. They all recite it, (laughs) you know, almost verbatim. And um, so this is the story that that Shaw himself believes of himself. 
But he tells his parents that he's not going to join them on their campaign plane, but instead he's going to New York and he is going to go work for the liberal publisher, Holborn Gaines, as his confidential assistant. And his mother says, that communist? (laughs) 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 And um, she is pretty angry about all of this stuff. And she's upset that he's going to take this job with this guy because that guy has expressed a lot of contempt for her husband. So we learn what's happened to uh, Major Bennett Marco, Frank Sinatra. He has been reassigned to Army Intelligence in Washington. And he likes the assignment by and large, except that every night he has the same nightmare. And um, we see him all sweaty and, you know, shaking his head back and forth, having his nightmare. (laughs) We get the famous brainwashing slash dream sequence. Do you want to describe that, Quinn? Uh, yeah. So, um, I, I, um, I love a good dream sequence. You do too. Like we always talk about this and the idea that this is kind of the first time that we see what's really happened to these men. And then we kind of see it from different perspectives, um, a couple more times in the film, I don't know. I always like to applaud uh, a director or writer that decides to put a dream sequence so close to the beginning of a film. I think it's a very risky thing to do. Um, And I think that this film is a tough one. It's so creatively done, but it's a little bit tough to follow. And so I don't know. I feel like we saw this with Don't Look Now where we've got sort of not a dream sequence, but like the sort the beginning um, more disorienting scene at the beginning that kind of tells everything that happens within the film. And this one, I just like kept thinking about throughout the film and trying to refer back to, but um, I like it too, because I feel like that's, I don't know. It's one of those things where you really feel like you're trusted with, you know, with information and with a film that is not easy to get, but you're trusted to, you know, not just like sit there and eat it up. Like you have to work for it a little bit. But um, the dream sequence starts with these guys all just sitting, looking bored as hell, um, listening to a woman talk about which you really don't know until like a few sentences in and you realize she is discussing hydrangeas. <laughs> And then it sort of will pan back to the men once in a while and they just look like they're going to fall asleep. And I'm going to refer to our lovely film site. So they're stuck at a hotel and they just are like sitting there listening to these old women drone on and on about flowers. They've been conditioned, programmed, and manipulated by a Pavlovian Chinese brainwasher to imagine attendance at a ladies' auxiliary meeting to imagine that they're there, to surrealistically convey the depth of the meaning, the camera begins a slow 360-degree all-encompassing tracking shot around the meeting in the lecture hall, exhibiting the ladies' garden club in the hotel. And Mrs. Whitaker speaking tediously about hydrangeas. Um, The iconic platoon is seated on the stage with her. Again, they look super bored. Um, The camera returns to the stage, does another 360 degree. 
movement and you see a tall, bald, communist, Chinese, Korean doctor. And that's Yen Lo. And he's actually in charge and is actually talking. So it's not the women talking. They just see this as as the women talking and droning on. And while this is occurring, you know, this brainwashing is is happening. Um, He introduces the captured men and that they're all very passive, that they're drugged right now, that they're hypnotized. And they're seated in front of giant posters and photographs of Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. The doctor addresses an interested assembled coalition of ununiformed Koreans, Chinese, Soviets, and civilians, sort of like showing off the power of this, this, you know, Pavlovian hypnotism. So again, they're all just like sitting there and he's actually the one talking and it's not about hydrangeas. Yeah. And then it just sort of shifts back and forth between Yen Lo and Mrs. Whitaker and when the men are called on, they by Yen Lo, they respond to him as ma'am because, of course, they still think that they're at this garden party. And so um, Yen Lo wants to demonstrate uh, how Raymond can emotionlessly kill one of his one of his, uh, I was going to say comrades, but <laughs> one of his <laughs> platoon mates. So first he's like, who do you, who do you dislike the least? And he says, I guess Bennett Marco. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. We need him to give you the Medal of Honor. So who, who is next? And his second choice is Ed Milvoli. And he is instructed to strangle him to death with a white scarf. And so it's just kind of creepy because he just quietly goes over to Mavoli and Mavoli's like, Hey man, what are you doing? <laughs> and then uh, Yen Lo's like, now you behave and you just do as you're told. And Shaw does strangle him to death and everybody else just looks completely bored. I think Sinatra uh, yawns um, and it's, it's just really pretty scary but very effective. Yes. That just uh, makes Marco wake up, ah, you know, out of his nightmare. So he's testifying to, uh, to a colonel and other army chiefs of staff about these horrifying dreams. And he says that he finds it curious that Malvoli was one of the two men lost in action, but every night in his dream, he's the one that Raymond and he can't finish, but obviously the one that Raymond strangled. So Raymond was honored with saving the lives of all but two of his platoon members, one of whom was Mavoli. And then Marco convincingly describes his warm feelings for war buddy Shaw, thoughts that are shared in common through brainwashing by all the platoon survivors because he, quote, saved their lives. Raymond Shaw is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. <laughs> so the committee recommends that he be temporarily reassi- re- reassigned to another, another task. He should serve in the public relations corps as a public relations officer. That's only important because we get to, <laughs> we get to see the Senator Iceland in, full effect. He stands and he delivers this bombastic rantings about how many communists are in this the <laughs> Congress. And um, 
Yeah, we. I mean, we get the sense that Angela Lansbury, his wife, has just fed him all, all basically his script of what he's supposed to say. Yeah. Um, in a scene after that, he's like, I just can't remember how many communists for the Senate. You know, can you just give me a number that's easy, like a round, easy number? And he's eating a steak and he's putting some Heinz 57 ketchup on it. And in the next scene, you see him say, there are 57 car-carrying communists. <laughs> but the se- the Secretary of Defense is just like, get this idiot out of here. And it's just kind of chaos because everybody's shouting at everybody else. But I just love all the insults that the Secretary of Defense like slings at Iceland, you know, um, <laughs> you're an insane person. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we meet another young Korean war vet, Corporal L. Melvin. He's been having the same kind of dreams. And in his dreams, all the women in the in the garden party are black because he's black. So I thought that was really a cool thing. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so he wakes up, his wife kind of consoles him and she's like, maybe you should get in touch with, you know, uh, a, a Captain Shaw. And he, he, <laughs> he flips into, um, <laughs> his brainwashed state. And he says, Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. So, uh, Melvin writes a letter to to Shaw and he says that he's had terrible dreams and he fears he's going crazy and the phone rings which we will soon learn is a trigger and the voice says Raymond why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire <laughs> next page <laughs> <laughs> I love this scene when he is playing and um, you just find that it's the queen of diamonds that triggers him and um, it activates the key to his brainwashed mind. Uh, the phone rings again then and it says the, the line on the, or the voice on the phone says, you know, you're going to be called at this time to check in with someone. The cover story is that, he he is a hit and run victim and he's being confined in a hospital. So that's all just a cover story so they can work on him a little more. Uh, Yen Lo introduces himself as from the Pavlov Institute. <laughs> we, we need t-shirts that say that, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, we should totally get those made. <laughs> and he's been assigned to watch Shaw. Basically, they keep him there for like a week, right? And go through this training. We don't see much of it, but it's just like you said, kind of just reinforcing this previous brainwashing that occurred. And we don't really know the the reason for this yet, but we do get to see a little bit more of um, Yenlo here. And he's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> <There's some> humor. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I, I love it. He's. He's just enigmatic on the screen, for sure. Um, and at one point, he says he's going to leave and go shop for his wife at Macy's. <laughs> and I don't know why that just tickled me. Because it's, I mean, this, you know, 
this guy who's brainwashing and hypnotizing people to do terrible things. And he's just going to go pick up some things for his wife. And we yeah. Love it. This huge communist, right? I mean, like, I think that's pretty funny too. But he's pretty proud of himself and he's showing off Raymond. And the whole idea is that since Raymond doesn't know that he's killed anybody, he doesn't have any guilt. Um, and so he doesn't have any fear of being caught. And so this is, this is really, you know, part of the genius of this brainwashing. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's in this part that he says it or in the very beginning, um, he like highlights that their <laughs> guilt and fear are uniquely American symptoms. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't have either of those. He can, he has all this freedom. And I was thinking so much about that. And I mean, for sure, guilt and fear. I mean, I don't know. If I weren't plagued by those two things, I would feel a lot more freedom. And I'm not saying that I would be, you know, free to kill people or anything like that, but just like free to be free because we, I don't know. I don't know if it is uniquely American, but it is definitely, I feel it, man. And that, I loved that. Just hearing that I thought it was fantastic. I don't think so. I think that, um, I think that's a cute line, but I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of cultures that play upon that idea of maybe not guilt, but shame, you know, and, you know, if you can make somebody feel ashamed of themselves, you've really got them in the palm of your hand. (laughs) You can really make them do anything. Yeah. So maybe more like uniquely human. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking of that AI that we know, our colleague, the AI. But um, oh yeah, he probably doesn't. He or she probably doesn't have guilt <laughs> to fear. Um, yeah, wohos, we do have an AI who works in our department. At least we suspect this person is AI. Yeah. Anyway, there's some evidence. This is, I mean, quite a bit. There's of a lot of yeah. There's actually a lot of evidence, um, but we'll report back later. Well, yeah, was, we can neither confirm nor deny it, but I mean, we really can confirm it. Just yeah, for sure. A lot. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, so Zilkoff wants some proof that Raymond is capable. I mean, it's been two years since he's seen any combat. And so they're trying to figure out like who we should kill. Yenlo suggests a practice target. He says, if kill, we must for a better New York. Why should it not be his superior at the newspaper, Mr. Holborn Gaines? <laughs> and at four o'clock in the morning, Raymond approaches Gaines reading in an elaborate bed jacket in his bedroom. The screen goes black as he moves menacingly toward his victim and proves his effectiveness as an assassin. Yeah, I like that scene too, because it really shows that he is um, fully, you know, robotic, almost very hypnotized. And his boss is like, what are you doing here? You know, he's like, they said you would be sleeping. <laughs> he's like, who are they? And that, it's just great. I know. It's so sad. It is sad, but it's also very good. And it's very beautiful, hard evidence of what happens when he's like, you know, because we saw it at the auxiliary meeting of the hydrangeas previously, how easy it was to kill somebody. But to see it sort of in real life is you know, very bone chilling. Yeah. 
So Marco is still having these haunting, recurring, disturbing dreams of Shaw calmly murdering two members of the (laughs) platoon. And his position as a public relations officer has been a disaster. (laughs) And he suspects that the honor awarded Shaw, that Shaw was awarded, was a sham. Because he says, there's something phony going on. I like that word phony. I think we should bring it back. I don't think people use the word phony enough. Yeah, it is a good one. But he says, he he says, I said, Raymond Shaw is the kindest, warmest, bravest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And even now I feel that way this minute. And yet somewhere in the back of my mind, some something tells me it's not true. It's just not true. It isn't as if Raymond's hard to like. He's impossible to like. In fact, he's probably one of the most repulsive human beings I've ever known in my whole, all my life. And so Marco is put on indefinite sick leave. Okay, so then we get the wonderful, strange scene on the train between Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee. Um. Marco is sweating profusely and trembling. He can't light his cigarette because his hands are shaking too badly. So he gets up and he f- he tips the table over and he goes to that space in between the train cars and she follows to befriend him. And the dialogue is so fucking weird in this scene. And did you think that she was like a double agent? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Like- it wasn't, it's not that I thought that during the scene, I was following the dialogue though. And I was like, I think I got to stop and re- rewind this because I'm not getting this or I didn't hear that right. But I did, you know, in fact, hear it right. It is off the wall and weird, but for sure. in the next scene in which we see her, when she picks him up, I was like, Oh, she's for sure. Like she's like his handler doing something, you know, he, she's, she's, in on this in some way, shape or form for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just like really odd. Apparently all this conversation is taken directly from the novel, but they talk about four U S States, Columbus's football team, railroad lines, and her two names, Eugenie and nickname Rosie. It just seems very odd. Um, but it's a very cool scene. Yeah. Anyway. Like at one point she says, did you know that I was, one of the original Chinamen to lay this rail, these railroad ties or something. And it's like, what? what? Also terribly, you know, outdated language, but it it's so bizarre and weird. Everything that she says is so weird. And then she's repeating and repeating and repeating her address, you know, and she's yes. like, do you have that? Do you have that? Do you have that? And it really feels like it, that's his trigger or something or like, you know, part of her address is like a code in some, you know, in some way. I mean, it's almost like, I don't know. I I did read some, you know, some interesting facts and things and whatnot about the film. And people do think that she is a double agent or somehow involved, but it sounds like that was never, ever what was, um, meant to be implied right no i mean but it's almost a satire of all of those 
scenes that we get of two, you know, handsome strangers who find themselves, you know, <laughs> on a train or, or, you know, in Italy or wherever they find themselves. And this just sort of weird banter that people in movies mm. engage in, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, that's a good point. It's like all that shit's such bullshit. And yeah. so, like, why not be like weird ass <laughs> encrypted bullshit? And the fact that he's going along with everything she's saying, you know, in her mind, you know, I mean, she's falling in love with him as he's like co-signing all these very strange things that she's saying. I'm happy for them in the end. I don't love it, honestly. <laughs> I don't, I think I mean, it's she's- so misguided and so... I love watching her. I would watch oh, me her too. do anything. You know, like she's great. I love Janet Lee. She's so good in this. She's so good. But her role and her character is so freaking weird that it <laughs> just, I don't know. It, it's unsettling in a way. And then their relationship to me is unsettling, not just in a way from somebody in 2023 looking at a 1960s film, but like in an even quicker way, you know, like it's just, I don't, I don't buy it. And I don't want to not buy her. I buy her. Like I buy her doing anything. She's believable as anything, but I don't know that I, I don't like it. It's, it, I keep coming back to it and I don't think I should be. (laughs) I mean, I think Janet Lee does something special, you know, here, but this character, there's, there's nothing to her. You know, she's just, what do you call that? I mean, she's just there for sure though, because she like, yeah, find her to be something completely different than what she's supposed to be or laid out to be. Maybe that's because Janet Lee is so good and put so much, um, you know, persona into the character. I don't know, but I find her to be, I find that to be so distracting, honestly, because I, I'm like, there's not, no way that this is nothing to do with any of this more devious plot. You know, this, this is not just like a romantic subplot. This is hooked in. It's such, it's so much so that it's so distracting. And yet, when you get to the end of it, it's nothing. It isn't any of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't. yeah, I don't know what the purpose then is. Is it to frustrate us or amuse us or distract us? Or I'm not really sure what the purpose of it is. But I do love it. I do love it, too. I can't get past that. But, yeah. Well, then we shift to the inside of Shaw's apartment. And Chun Jin has um, been ushered in. And supposedly Shaw's stepfather, Iceland, provided Chun Jin with a visa so he could come to America and find employment as a servant. And so that's what happens. And Shaw hires him and he says he'll give him every Thursday and every other Sunday off for $60 a week. <laughs> so great. Um, okay, we do get a lot of juxtaposition between Iceland and Abraham Lincoln. Um, and uh, we see Iceland is reflected off the glass covering a portrait of Lincoln. And so I guess, you know, we're seeing this sort of anti-communist jack off, you know, <laughs> against this like American hero. I guess that's what the contrast is supposed to be. Yeah. Um, 
but he he's complaining to his wife that he he can't keep the numbers straight. So um, this is where I think we get the fifty seven thing. She yells at him a whole bunch and tells him that she has to he has to do exactly as he's told. Um, and he keeps saying, "Well, I think that," and she says, "Don't think." You know, you're good at a great many things, but thinking isn't one of them. So Marco rings the bell on Raymond Shaw's door and Chun Jin answers the door. And there's a tight close up and and Marco realizes that this is somebody from his past. And he is the guy who led the platoon into the ambush. And so thus ensues the craziest fight (laughs) between these two uh wow what do you think about this fight scene quinn well i don't love it um (laughs) (laughs) and also question though now do we are we supposed to believe that marco recognizes shenzhen or just that he sees him as a threat um does he specifically recognize him? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the fight is, um, <laughs> the fight is, it feels like it's in slow motion and it's very hard to watch for me. It's awkward. And I know that they each did their own stunts. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it was like sort of meant to look and people think it seems like a very realistic scuffle but it's so awkward (laughs) it's really bad and meanwhile marco is asking chunjin all these questions like what was shaw doing with his hands and why did the ladies turn into russians and um in between all this crazy like kind of like karate and then punching and yeah just like this sort of free-for-all and it yeah. turns out that um, Sinatra was actually injured um, during this fight. He broke the little finger on his left hand in the middle of this fight. Uh, yes, and this is also when Shenzhen says that he's Shaw's houseboy, <laughs> which is a oh. funny term, I guess. Yes. Um, so uh, neighbors call the police. Marco is detained. and. He remembers Rosie's phone number, thank goodness, and he calls her and she meets him at the police station. And in the taxi, she keeps licking her her nap napkin. What's it called? She keeps licking this cloth. Handkerchief. Handkerchief. She keeps licking this handkerchief and then like patting it on his on his face and covering it and wiping at his wounds and stuff. And I'm just like. I don't like it when people blow out candles on a, you know, like on a birthday cake. I'm just completely grossed out by that. So this is just like, I'm just like, ah, can I fast forward? You? What? People used to do that to you when you were younger. My grandma. Yeah, my mom did. Yeah. And then somehow it transitioned into dipping something in water and then putting it on your face. Well, like, that I wouldn't mind. I don't want. I wouldn't want somebody spit all over my face. Thank you very much. I know what a weird thing to do, and like what a oh. weird. I mean, especially you know, um, post twenty twenty 
pandemic or, you know, whatever, we're still in it. But it's so weird to think about somebody licking something and putting it on your face in 2023. And I just keep thinking, how many times did they do that scene? Like, how how many times did she, like, put her spit all over Frank Sinatra's face? Like, I just... Frank Sinatra is lucky. Let's just say that. I mean, Janet Lee is a goddess. Yes. The women in this movie are like on another level. Yep. But she tells him that she's engaged. And he's like, what? She's like, yeah, I went home and saw my fiance. And she's like, I told you I wasn't married. I didn't tell you I wasn't engaged. But after she had met Marco on the train, she went home and she instantly called off her engagement. And she, you know, just says that she's with him. And so she she defines their strong bond while confusing the capital city with the name of one of its most famous generals. Um, (laughs) You were a pretty solid type yourself, according to Washington, with whom they had apparently checked. So I figured if they were willing to go to all that trouble to get a comment on you out of George Washington... Why, you must be somebody very important indeed. (laughs) And I must say it was rather sweet of the general with you, only a major. I didn't know you even knew him. If they were the tiniest bit puzzled about you, they could have asked me. Oh, yes, indeed, my darling Ben. They could have asked me and I would have told them. (laughs) I hate it. I hate it. It's terrible. It's t- she's too smart for this. I mean, Janet Lee is too smart for this character, but yeah. Oh gosh, and I just realized Janet Lee got herself caught up in another mother, another mother movie. And, oh, she did in oh, the same like, year. Well, Psycho. No, two years later. Sorry, yeah. two years later. Um, but my goodness, you're right. But also, both black and white. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't need to be black and white. Yeah. Okay. So later Shaw is furious that his war comrade broke up into his apartment and beat up his house boy. And when Marco mentions his awful real swinger of a nightmare, Shaw interrupts. And then he says, is that the one with the Russian general and some Chinese guys and all of us who are on the patrol? And he brings up Melvin's letter And he said, this is really strange. He says that I was his best friend in the army, um, but he knows that, you know, everybody hated him in real life. And he goes, they all hated me. Of course, not as much as I hated them. And then uh, they're trying to, they're like, okay, this is really weird. We got to figure out what this is. I have to just interject here that this is the, this is the moment for me in the movie where I started loving Shaw. Cause I mean, it's, it is easy also to hate him um, <laughs> along with everyone else because he seems so dull and he breaks up all their fun in the beginning and the way that he like treats his mom, even though she's quite evil in the beginning, especially. And he's like this kind of, he just seems like a spoiled brat, you know, and he, he's this decorated soldier and you realize it's for something that he never did anyways, you know, he shouldn't have received the accolades. It's all, it's all ruse. And so you want to dislike him 
And I think you do probably up until this point. And it's this moment where you see this sort of self-deprecation and you see that like he knows how boring he is. He knows how dull he is. He knows how, you know, unlikable he is. Unlovable, one might even say. Oh, yeah. Unlovable, right? And I like that. And I, I start to like him here. And also, I think that this scene also it also indicates to you that he doesn't have any ulterior motive that he knows about, you know, because he's like, Oh yeah. You know, he wrote me about this stupid dream. Is that what you have to talk to me about? And he doesn't put it together as being, um, you know, anything scary yet or anything like that. He's like, Oh yeah. It's just, it shows, I think that he has no motive, you know, Mm -hmm. to do anything bad or negative even though he's been brainwashed and like under all of this he's at a moment ready to kill anyone (laughs) yeah so marco travels to washington and he is he is asked to identify some people from his dream really or from the brainwashing brainwashing session and he does he one of them was Berezovo, a member of the Central Committee, and he says this one wore sunglasses and smelled like a goat. <laughs> I love it. And it's remarkable that Corporal Melvin had made the identical identifications one hour earlier in Alaska. So now they know that Marco is not insane, and he is put in charge of a combined government intelligence unit, a CIA and FBI joint force based in New York to work on this mystery. And his assignment is to investigate Raymond Shaw and his activities. So they get drunk on Christmas Eve. (laughs) And um, Shaw just talks about what a terrible person his mother is. And there's these really wonderful lines in the scene. One of them is, you know, Ben, it's a terrible thing to hate your mother, but I didn't always hate her. When I was a child, I only kind of disliked her. (laughs) (laughs) And he tells the story of him and Josie Jordan. And do we get the whole flashback here? I think we get the flashback up into, we have the flashback of him being wounded on the beach uh-huh. or coming to sort of save him and then bringing her back to their beach house where she meets, where he meets her father. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about that. Right. I yeah. mean, so he's bitten by a snake in, in the flashback and she's on a bicycle and she stops and she has a, a knife or a razor with her or something. I can't remember why. Um, she explains why, but I don't remember what the reason was. Um, but she's like, oh, this is so great. My dad's going to be so excited because he loves snakes and there haven't been any, he hasn't seen any snakes all summer. Now you've gotten bitten by a snake. This is great. <laughs> but she doesn't have anything to tie his leg up with. So she just takes off her shirt. And so she basically drives back to her house in her underwear on her bicycle. Right. And of course he falls in love with her. But I mean, she is really charming and the dad is also like super charming. Yeah, she is. And and yes, he certainly is as well. And I do like that scene. 
And I feel like that's natural. It feels organic. It feels like it's, you know, it's not like called off my engagement because of this one moment that we met. <laughs> it feels more organic than that. You know, I like that. No, yeah. and But we find out that Senator Thomas Jordan is not liked by Raymond's mother and that she once slandered him on a national radio program and Jordan says, I once found it necessary to sue your mother for defamation of character and slander. One of your mother's more endearing traits is her tendency to refer to anyone who disagrees with her about anything as a communist. <laughs> but Raymond fell in love that summer. And he says, you cannot believe, Ben, how lovable the whole damn thing was. All summer long, we were together. I was lovable. Josie was lovable. The senator was lovable. The days were lovable. The nights were lovable. <laughs> And everybody was lovable, except, of course, my mother. Except mother. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that so much. Oh, yeah. So what happened was (laughs) (laughs) his mother sabotaged the relationship and because it was dangerous to her own plans. And she tricked... Raymond into believing that he made the decision to break up with Josie, but actually she put him up to it. Um, But later she'll come back and try to reinforce that idea that he was very rude to Josie all those years ago. But she has this whole speech about how if you were at war, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, it would be weird if I allowed you to, you know, consort with the enemy. Well, we are at war. It's a cold war and things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And so we have to understand what side we're on. Are we on the side of freedom? Are we on the side of the Thomas Jordans of this country? And so she, you know, hammers it into him that he has to break it off with Josie. So it's pretty, it's pretty sad. And Raymond breaks down in the present with Marco. And he says, I'm not lovable. But I loved her. I did love her. I do love her. Yeah, I do love the scene because of what it does for his character. I think it's tremendous to be able to shift like that as a viewer um, with a sort of a very tiny flashback and a conversation where you're seeing somebody be completely vulnerable. Yeah. But it's such a short, it's not a long, it's not a super long scene, but it does, it just succeeds so well in completely shifting your thoughts about who he is. Completely. And I mean, you understand why he was such a hard nose in the army and why everybody hated him. Right. Because he had had his damn heart broken, you know? Yes. So the next day, Raymond. Mother trouble. Lots of mother trouble. (laughs) So the next day, Raymond goes into a bar, and the bartender is just sort of talking in the background. And he says, Why don't you? I think he's talking about something else. And he says, Why don't you pass the time with a little solitaire? And so Shaw is like, Can I get a deck of cards? And he starts playing solitaire, and he turns over the Queen of Diamonds. And Marco walks in and it's just an accident that the bartender says, 
why don't you go and take yourself a cab and go up to Central Park and go jump in a lake? <laughs> and so Raymond does it because yeah. he's been triggered. Um, and I heard from Angela Lansbury in that interview that this was like the coldest day of the year <laughs> and they needed to break up the ice so that he had water to like, you know, dive into or walk into. Oh. Um, yeah, but she said he did it. He just did it without hesitation. And Oh, Larry. Um, <laughs> but Marco pulls, he's like, get out of there. What are you doing in there? <laughs> I think a little Sinatra came out in that moment. It was yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. But Raymond's like, I don't remember. I don't remember, you know, why I did that. Uh-huh. And so um, Marco is like, Oh yeah, it was the guy in the in the bar that told you to do that. So we we go uh there's a scene with the psychiatrist who is black but his race is never commented on and I think there was something in the trivia about how this was one of the first appearances by a black actor where, you know, he's not playing a black character. He's just playing yeah. a psychiatrist. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, 62, that's pretty good, right? I guess that makes sense. I'm trying to think of other movies at the time, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been like near the end sort of of the code and things were changing in terms of what we saw. But still, I mean, it wasn't after the code. It it still was within the, the Hayes Code. So he explains that the solitary game serves as some kind of trigger mechanism and that the focus of attention should be on the face cards because of their identification with human beings and that Jackson Kings could also be eliminated as triggers. And that's when Marco um, remembers something. He says, I can see that Chinese cat standing there smiling like Fu Manchu. And he said, the Queen of Diamonds is reminiscent in many ways of Raymond's dearly loved and hated mother and is the second key to clear the mechanism for any other assignment. So anytime Raymond sees the Queen of Diamonds, he turns into a slave of his mother, basically. Yeah. In the next part, Senator Iceland is rehearsing his uh, speech as he sits in his makeup chair. Mm. And his mother decides that it would look really good if Raymond got married. And so she says, it occurred to me that Tom Jordan's daughter, Jocelyn. um, So I might've been a little um, hasty. I now think she would make Raymond an excellent wife. And so she's going to have a big party and invite Jocelyn and the Senator to their house and sort of, you know, try to manufacture this (laughs) reunion. This is a costume party, which I think is kind of funny how everybody's dressed up in like different costumes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's important, obviously, because of what we just learned about the Queen of Diamonds. But um, I don't know. I I can't. Do you remember what Raymond is dressed up as? Um, He's um, Groucho Marx. No. Is he? No, 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 no. He's. A Spanish gaucho, <laughs> gaucho, <laughs> gaucho. 
<laughs> Gaucho Marx. Yeah, that's his joke, right? Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. So we get um, <laughs> Johnny Iceland is dressed as Abe Lincoln. Mm. And um, Mrs. Shaw is either Little Bo Peep or Mother Goose. Yeah. You know, it just strikes me. Um, again, the Iceland Lincoln connection that is sort of being implanted, like the, um, you know, we've got, I don't know, we've got that happening in this film. And I think upon watching it this time, I felt like it was horrifically relevant. And then it's like, I don't know. It's, there's so much about this movie that I feel like had it been made now, it would be just as poignant. Um, but then I think about like Trump in the Reagan comparison, you know, and like even like the makeup and the misquoting of things. It's like, I don't know. It's very, it's very scary actually like this, everything that's happening. I know in the remake of this film, which you know, I don't know when that was, but um, it's not exactly the same story. But um, Shaw is 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 running for presidential candidate, so you know it's it's a little bit more um, on the surface. I think it's less subtle than the original. But um, yeah, I guess now just remembering that Iceland was dressing up as Lincoln, and there's more of a connection there than than you know the reflection earlier. It's freaky. It's prophetic, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with you. Um, It's certainly uncomfortable to me, the way that Iceland and Lincoln are constantly paired in this movie, because he is such a buffoon, and he's being controlled by this woman who supposedly, at this point, we think she is the sort of um, McCarthy-esque character right. trying to root out all the communists. We're about to find out that she's actually op- the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is very, very scary revelation. And because in this scene, Raymond's mother divulges that she is his American controller and she is an agent for the Reds. Um, and she says, why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire? And when he comes on the comes upon the Jack of Diamonds, she's unexpectedly called away, and she takes the card as as a precaution with her. But Jocelyn, <laughs> sweetheart, has been looking at this whole scene from outside, and she comes into the study and she's reunited with him, and she is dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. After they embrace, they they. They depart, they're going to elope, and they leave behind her card costume. And there's that great low-angle shot of the huge card that's sitting on the yes. Davenport, I guess you'd call it in oh, those days. Davenport. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so Raymond is arguing with Senator Jordan, and she's asking him not to block her husband's attempt um, to place his name into the running as a vice presidential candidate. And he says he's going to block her, her plans and he's threatening impeachment proceedings in the Senate. 
against her husband. I despise John Iceland and everything that Icelandism has come to stand for. I think if John Iceland were a paid Soviet agent, he could do he could not do more harm. This <laughs> would not do more harm to this country than he's doing now, which is pretty funny. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Cut to Marco and Rosie having dinner, and Mark Marco impulsively suggests, "Let's get married." Um, <laughs> now Marco wants to reprogram Shaw after composing a deck only of Queen of Diamonds yes. cards. I, and I love that one shot of him where he's got the whole hand and it's all Queens of Diamonds. Yes. And he tries to do the card trick and then reveals that this is what, you know, magicians do on the street. I love it. So he thinks that um, this is going to be pretty easy, <laughs> you know, to just sort of rewire this kid's brain. Sure. Um <laughs> So the next day, uh, Marco sees Shaw and he learns uh, that Shaw has gotten married and now Shaw is making jokes. Um, he's already married his queen of diamonds girl and he's just in this wonderful mood. He's just like a completely transformed person. And he says, there we were, the queen of diamonds and me looking like, I don't know, like Gaucho Marx. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Raymond's like, "Hey, hey, I made a joke, but you know, this is, but this is pretty. Uh, this is a whole different side." Yeah, it's almost like a completely different actor, and that's how good I think that he is. You know, he's so good in this. Yeah, um, and this—it's so nice to see even just a glimpse of what you know his happiness could be like. Because you feel bad. I mean, he's being used and as a. He's just being used by everyone. So yeah. you want to see him. You want to see him on his own. You want to see him happy. You want to see him, you know, in a in a better place. You just do because you trust him. And I think that that just speaks volumes of, you know, Lawrence Harvey, really, more than anything. Like, I just, I can get on board. You know, I know his accent kind of sucks in this movie, but beyond yeah. that, because yeah, that is it does it does take you back a little here and there. But um, beyond that, it just you want the best for him because he's such a great he's great in this role. He's just so good. Yeah, he is. So Raymond is changing his clothes, and Marco um, talks to Josie, and he says Raymond is sick, Mrs. Shaw, mm. in a kind of a special way. He doesn't <laughs> even realize it himself, and um. She, Jocelyn's like, no, he's not. He's he's fine. Um, he's tied up inside in a thousand knots. I know that, but you've got to believe me and trust me. I can make him well. Oh, <laughs> so Marco decides to let him go rather than have him surrender to questioning. Okay, so on the morning of their honeymoon, Jocelyn clicks on the TV set and... Raymond says that there are two very different kinds of people. The human race is divided into two distinct, irreconcilable groups. Those who walk into the rooms and automatically turn television sets on and those who walk into rooms and automatically turn them off. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, now we've married each other. And so (laughs) this is going to be a problem. But um, then we get the news broadcast. Um, Their romance is compared to the, to the tragic one in, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Jocelyn Jordan, daughter of Senator Thomas Jordan and Korean war hero Raymond Shaw, 
stepson of Senator John Iceland. It appears, however, that this Montague Capulet note would have little effect on the feud now raging between the two party leaders. From his campaign headquarters this morning, Senator Iceland stepped up his charges against the leader of the group attempting to block his nomination. And we see Senator Iceland accusing the liberal Senator Jordan of high treason, and he makes a motion for impeachment and a civil trial. Now, Raymond decides to return home, and he's like, he's going to uh, beat up that vile, slandering son of a numbskull to a bloody pulp. Mm. But the minute that he sees his mom, she reaches for a deck of cards in a drawer and triggers him toward a very important deadly errand. There's something you have to do, she says. This is so sad. I don't want to even say it. (laughs) Do you want me to say it? Yeah, I'm so sad. All right. So in the next brilliantly photographed scene, a hypnotically trance sleepwalking Raymond enters the Jordan townhouse in the middle of the night and finds the senator mixing a midnight snack in the kitchen. Shaw calmly, and of course, Senator Jordan is like, oh, I can't believe, you know, what Iceland did, but, you know, I love you. And, you know, I mean, he sort of like says something to that would touch any human. But of course, Shaw is in a trance and because he's been ordered to kill Jordan. So Shaw, Shaw calmly puts, pulls out a revolver with a silencer, holding it at his side as the senator removes a carton of milk from the fridge. A low angle shot captures the image of the gun and an American eagle above Raymond's head. The bullet from the gun blasts through the carton and hits his father-in-law in the heart. Mother's milk flows. This is film site, but mother's milk flows out in one stream from the bullet hole made in the carton. Jordan, a principled and pure symbol of lily white liberal Americanism, bleeds white milk instead of red blood. Raymond also turns and kills his new bride, Josie, his queen of diamonds, when she rushes down towards him after hearing the, you know, the silence or. You know, she heard that still. I love, this sucks. It is, it is tough. It's tragic. And also, this movie, there's so much going on. Like, I can't, you know, it's almost unbelievable, the layers upon layers upon layers. But yeah, this is obviously what the setup has been for, you know, for him to kill this senator. And also, I don't know if it was meant for him to kill Josie, but of course she, you know, came down so. unexpectedly and yeah. Okay. Um, love the milk. That was in my <laughs> notes. I, and there's I, also a twice, twice Jordan is right in front of an American Eagle with spread wings. So, I mean, yeah. Frankenheimer. Okay. Yeah. But we get that image twice. So in, in case you, you missed it the first time. Yeah. And I do like to see the milk in a different, in a different sort of setting here, because typically mm-hmm. we've talked maybe about milk and the idea that like there's so many villains associated with milk and how it's like this kind of really fun juxtaposition. But then we see Jordan associated with milk here. Yeah, pure American. <sighs> yeah, I think just as a symbol of like good old American goodness. Yeah. You know? 
So the next morning, Major Marco is reading the awful headlines, and he realizes that he was kind of to blame for this in a way Mm -hmm. because he let Raymond go. So he says, Raymond Shaw shot and killed his wife early this morning. It wasn't Raymond that really did it. In a way, it was me. Oh, Marco. Well, I mean, the whole, you know, you see him through this whole movie, just like pushing and pushing and pushing. And then he backs up yep. in that moment because he wants him to be happy and experience that. But also I think he's blinded by his own weird relationship, <laughs> which may or may not be devious. <laughs> I think it is. But again, you know, I fell for the red herring, but the idea, you know, that he, uh, yeah, it's a lot of, that's guilt, man, too. And yeah, and goes back to the, you know, monumentally American <laughs> fear and guilt. And for sure, it's just, un, it's not like him, but of course it's understandable in the position that he's in, having just found love himself. So it makes him, you know. More vulnerable to, uh, I don't know, backing up a little bit. But, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy throughout the whole film that, or throughout the first half of the film, no one's taking him really seriously, but also nobody's completely worried about him. And honestly, Mm -hmm. that takes me back to in this film. It's like you've got this major, you know, character here who is also, you know, a, a war hero, a decorated soldier who's bringing these ideas to you know his his bosses and to people that could help him and they're like no 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 you need to take a leave of absence you're fine you're fine yeah oh we find you know we just this was corroborated by another member and now everything falls into place but but yeah i think he should feel guilty (laughs) (laughs) so marco has um Raymond in this hotel room and all he has is this deck of cards. That's only the Queens of diamonds. And he's going to try to reprogram Raymond in this scene. Um, So first he's like, all right, you didn't save our lives and take out the enemy company or anything like that. Raymond, did you? And Raymond says, no. And then, um, so what happened? And so he says, what really happened? Um, and it says a close-up of Marco's face in this sequence first appearing here is accidentally out of focus yet perfectly represents Raymond's fuzzy and blurry point of view perspective. <laughs> so I love that. And I, I, I read in the trivia that Sinatra's best takes were the first ones. Um, and so this was the first take. And so they wanted to keep it um, even though it was accidentally out of focus. Yeah, I, I that's very famous about this movie, and you really do notice it. But then right around this time, either right after or right before, when Raymond and his mother are speaking, his mother's face is a little bit out of focus as well. And so it does feel <laughs> it feels like it it feels like it's supposed to be like that because of you know what he's seeing, and I, I don't know. It just I. I want to believe that was Frankenheimer's, you know, decision more than it was Frank Sinatra's asshole clause <laughs> in his contract, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. But, yeah. I don't think that's so, true, though. I think it's 
Sinatra's asshole claws. Yeah, I think that's the most likely explanation. Um, So they keep playing and they keep going through all these things. And Raymond is understanding and, and reciting everything that really happened. He killed Mr. Gaines. Um, That was a test and he really did jump in the lake. Um, It was an accident, but he was triggered by something somebody said in the bar and then he killed Senator Jordan. And this is where he's um, kind of falling apart. And Marco says, you are to forget everything that happened at the Senator's house. Do you understand Raymond? You'll only remember it when I tell you. So you are to forget it. Do you understand? Um, And then, Marco is like, so why is this all being done? And Shaw says, I don't, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows except Berezovo in Moscow and my American operator. Um, But whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen pretty soon (laughs) at the convention. Maybe, I don't know. Um, And he's getting freaked out because he realizes that he is really under the control of his handlers and Marco says, uh, he's, well, Shaw says, they can make me do anything, Ben, can't they? Anything. And Marco says, we'll see, kid. We'll see what they can do, and we'll see what they can, can't do. So the Red Queen is our baby. Well, take a look at this, kid. 52 of them. Take a good look at them, Raymond. Look at them. <laughs> and, he's, and he's telling them that it's all over. Um, the queens are telling him that it's all over. All these links, they're smashed. They're smashed because we say so. We're <laughs> busting up the joint. We're tearing out all the wires. We're busting it up so good. All the queen's horses and all the queen's men will never put old Raymond back together again. You don't work anymore. That's an order. Anybody invites you to a game of solitary, you tell them, sorry, Buster. The ball game is over. <sighs> He's so great in that scene, right? <laughs> That's a thing of beauty. Oh, it yeah. It really is. It so is. But also, what? Yeah, I just. I don't know. But come on. That's not the way this works. I know. That's it's so like, naive. Who I mean, are you to believe that you can unlink this shit? It's brainwashing Sinatra. What do you even think? And so just think? to prove the point, the phone rings. And Raymond just sort of stumbles out, you know, you know, shambles out. And he says, you know, yes, yes, I understand, mother. And and he just he just walks off. And uh, Marco doesn't suspect his mother, of course. Yeah. Who would? But um, Marco says, remember, Raymond, the wires have been pulled. They can't touch you anymore. You're free. Well. Hmm. He's not. Yeah. So we get the whole plan now from Angela Lansbury. And this is also a beautiful, beautiful scene. Yeah, it really is. Might be my favorite scene. I think it is mine as well. She's so good. Oh, she's so great in this scene. So he's supposed to assassinate the presidential candidate. And that would cause... Raymond's stepfather to advance his political career and pave a way for them to take over the white house. And he's going to dress as a priest. That's the way no one will question him. <laughs> and uh, Chun Jin's going to give him the army sniper's rifle. And she just lays out the whole plan for him. 
You're to shoot the presidential nominee through the head, and Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms, stand in front of the microphones, and begin to speak. And she reveals that actually she is an agent for the Russians. And so her whole plan is to, you know, be able to get into the White House, basically, so she can take the whole thing down. And she also says that she didn't know that it was going to be him and that the commies, you know, to, to keep her in control, turned him into the agent. I don't and, know why I didn't catch that. Yeah. Cause it, I, I think like, what would have been the advantage of choosing him? But yeah, that makes, of course. And so she tells him the exact phrase when he should shoot the gun. Um, You are to hit him right at the point that he finishes the phrase, nor would I ask of any fellow American in defense of his freedom, that which I would not gladly give myself my life before my liberty. Is that absolutely clear? And so um, she strokes his hair and grabs his hand and she apologizes um, for all of this. And there's another bit of just wonderful dialogue. She says, I'm on the point of winning for them the greatest foothold they would ever have in this country. And they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers. And they chose you because they thought it would bind me closer to them. When I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into dirt for what they did to you and what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. And she kisses him on the mouth. Um, And that's the creepiest thing I've ever seen. But I mean, it's photographed very beautifully. And she was instructed, obviously, by Frankenheimer um, so that they could get away with this, you know, to cover her mouth with her hand. So you don't actually see it, but I mean, it's pretty heavily implied. Right. Okay. So I didn't know this. It says that the last in the climax, um, it's noted for similarity to Alfred Hitchcock's finale and Albert Hall in the two versions of the man who knew too much or in the scene of the detection of sinister going us on within the Dutch windmill and foreign correspondent. Anyway, so Shaw, we just see him, you know, do exactly what his mother told him to do. He walks with the case into the, into the spot. I mean, nobody suspects a priest. He ascends the stairs. He climbs to the upper balcony to a catwalk that leads him to a tiny projection booth in one of the far corner, in the far corner of the arena. And Marco is just like, oh, fuck, (laughs) this is bad. I haven't heard from him. And so Marco is like super scared. And so they take a taxi to the garden and they enter amid all the noisy political rituals and hoopla of placard waving, band playing and costume convention delegates. So everybody's on the stage and Marco tells the Colonel that no shot is there. I tell you, there's a bomb here, a time bomb that's set waiting to go off and events spiral along a masterful parallel editing and cross cutting with increased tempo the playing of the national anthem 
the unpacking, assembling, and setting up of the telescopic site on Raymond's rifle, the nervous ticks and sweat on the face of the whiskey-soaked demagogue beside his calculating wife, and Marco's glancing from side to side around the top of the arena. Which is not great acting on <laughs> Sinatra's part, but I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. So Marco realizes that one light hasn't been dimmed as all the other ones are dimmed. And so he realizes that's where Shaw is. And he races up to the room. We get some, you know, Dutch angles Mm -hmm. here. And Shaw loads bullets into the chamber of his high-powered rifle and aims the crosshairs at Arthur's chest. Marco leaps up steep stairs as Arthur's voice echoes through the stadium, getting closer and closer to those code words. And as Arthur begins the phrase, Mrs. Shaw grasps her husband's arm and Shaw raises his rifle to his shoulder. Tension is excruciating as the speaker coughs mid-sentence, allowing a delay of a few more seconds for Marco to reach closer to the booth. And when Arthur utters his last word, liberty, Shaw shoots his mother and his stepfather. We're not really sure if that's because Marco actually deprogrammed him or he realized that his, you know, his parents plot. Um, But the spell was somehow broken in that moment. And he didn't shoot the candidate. He shot his parents. I mean, we just spent a bit of time talking about how stupid it was for um, Marco to even think that he could have deprogrammed him. But something (laughs) does happen. Yeah, it's it's the consciousness of understanding or having someone else tell you what happened or I don't know, but I don't know. I don't really like it, but I mean, I'm glad I'm glad at the outcome, but I don't think it makes any sense. No, I don't think it does either, because I don't think we can rely on him being able to deprogram him. So, like, I need a little bit more. Even if it was just a recording of him in this trance saying, uh, no, I didn't save everyone. Yes, we were in Moscow. You know, even if he just heard that, that would have been enough for me to mm-hmm. feel like, okay, well, maybe just, like, the consciousness of it all could do something to break it. But, yeah, don't, don't love that. Not at all. So when Marco bursts into the room, Shaw turns and holds him helplessly at bay. You couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. So I had to. That's why I didn't call. Oh, God, Ben. And then he turns the rifle on himself and he blows his brains out off camera. And the echo of the gunshot blast dissolves into the crackling lightning thunderclaps of a rainstorm. And in the very end, we get an epilogue with Marco. He's looking out of a rain-spattered window, and he wonders about Raymond's heroism. He reads from a history of the U.S. Army book filled with citations for other heroic Congressional Medal of Honor winners, including his own posthumous citation of bravery for Shaw's sacrifice in stopping the Iceland's. He mourns and muses about the appropriate citation and epitaph for Shaw. I don't want to read the whole thing, but. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you have to at all. I think that, uh, I don't know. I guess that, uh, 
don't know. What did you think of the end? I don't love it. I mean, actually, I always forget about this part. <laughs> yeah. Because it's basically just like, you know, it's a little... I don't like this kind of thing. This no. comment on the theme or whatever. It's yeah, like, because this is a place where it feels so heavy-handed when you are just completely trusted with putting all these like other pieces together and then then you're just given this all this shit in the end sort of you know I also think too about like how is this I don't know I think about um Iceland and how how is so I think about the end game of all of this now this was to be the presidential nominee but would Iceland have been then I mean it's supposed to pave the way to to um you know to the presidential election but how do we know that now what would have happened next also how i don't like the wrapping up of all of this where i'm a lot i'm very interested in someone unraveling the pieces of the of the key players and i want to know more about the pavlov institute you know and i want to see <laughs> them be reprimanded or abolished or you know, instead of just seeing it in this like, oh, hum, it's raining and I'm, I'll be happy because I, I met Rosie and, you know, I don't know. Just feels yeah. not enough for a movie yeah. that did so much, so beautifully and so subtly and so creatively and uniquely to end it like this. I don't feel, I feel like that's a, I don't know. I don't like that. I don't, that's not what this movie deserves. <laughs> and the thunderclap ending. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I, I really love this movie, even though it, I don't think it all fits together. I mean, I think that there's just so, I just, I don't know why. I just, I've seen this movie so many times and I just love it. I mean, I just love all, I love so many of the pieces of it and I love the actors um, not a huge fan of Frank Sinatra as a person or anything, but I mean, I think that um, he was really well cast here. Um, I think he did a really good job. I think he did a good job too. Um, but more so like my money is there for um, Angela Lansbury, Janet Lee, and Lawrence Harvey. Like, I just think that he's so good in this too. And maybe a little bit overlooked because Angela Lansbury is like a fucking goddess yeah. in this, and she's perfection. And Janet Lee is doing something with a very, like we said, strange characterization, and yet doing something that's so memorable and gorgeous. And I think that, you know, Harvey is so good in this too. He reminds me a lot of Jude Law too, the way that he looks, but I'm oh. just sliding that in because um, I got the the sexy Pope on my mind, but, um, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that, but I totally get it. So funny how, like if somebody resembled Oscar Isaac, I'm sure I would like see it, you know, <laughs> I'm just like imprinted on that dude. But yeah. do you see the trivia in the doc? Yes. Do you want to read some? Yep. 
Um, okay, so we've gone through some of this. Okay, so in 1994, the Manchurian Candidate was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The film ranked 67th on the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies when that list was first compiled in 98, but a 2007 revised version excluded it. It was 17th on AFI's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills list. In April 2007, Lansbury's character was selected by Time as one of the 25 greatest villains in cinema history. Love that. Yeah, I do too. Oh, because her character is so layered that even like we come out of it not completely understanding her motivations because... It's it's like an onion. It's not easy. And nothing about this movie is easy except for the very end where everything is wrapped up in a tight little bow. And we don't like that, but nothing else is easy about this. And even yeah. her characterization, as, you know, and I think even if we were shown a little bit more of her backstory, I think she could have even been a better villain because maybe we would have some empathy in some way, shape, or form for her, which makes villains even scarier, I think. So I don't know, but I wanted more. But maybe I just need to read the book. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that too. I wonder if it's unscribed. I'm going to check. <laughs> okay. According to executive producer Howard W. Koch, Koch, Koch right? I guess. Maybe Cock. Maybe Coke. Coke. The budget was $2.2 million. Of that amount, $1 million went for Frank Sinatra's salary, with another 200000 for Lawrence Harvey, leaving only $1 million for everything else? <laughs> I'm so mad right now. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. I got to move on by reading the next piece of trivia, but that <laughs> makes me so mad. The brainwashing sequence was filmed three times in its entirety. The Garden Club Ladies, Corporal Allen's, Corporal Allen Melvin's viewpoint, and the Communist Captors against three different sets constructed so the camera could turn completely around in each. The parts were then edited together to convey the shifting perspectives. Oh, what a job! So cool. that must have been. Oh, what a job! But so. Well done, my God. Well, I am in awe of that, and it makes me forget about what Frank Sinatra was paid. <laughs> Do you want to read the five-letter, five-star reviews or the half-star reviews? Um, I want to read the five-star because I like to laugh at the oh. um, lower ratings. Okay. Right, so this is... Watched by Andralon. This is the person's name. Okay. Scarier than most horror movies, funnier than most comedies, more convincing than a documentary, because even if we don't buy the brainwashing, we can recognize the lies and difference and conditioning of politics and family. It obeys no screenwriting rules as it shifts <laughs> from nightmare to joke in gorgeous black and white, employing every trick in the book to terrify us with a tour of the soul. This is a ride I love every time. Oh, I really like this review because it says what I've been trying to say in a much 
more beautiful and succinct way. And that's like that nothing makes sense. It's there's so much going on. There's so many layers to this and it comes off. It comes off sort of seamlessly, except for the minor things that we've said. Um, I love that. I'm sorry. I love that phrase though, too, with its horror of the soul. That's a great phrase. Yeah. And it is like, if you don't buy the brainwashing, which I don't think they developed well enough, they just are giving us glimpses of it, which I think is okay. But maybe you don't buy the brainwashing. Maybe no one does. I don't know. Um, The lies and difference and conditioning of politics and family. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Okay, so this next one is from Aaron. Honestly, one of the most tragic films with the most tragic lead character that I've ever seen. I was just so lovable. Oh, Raymond Shaw, you're breaking my heart. And if there's more (laughs) evil than Angela Lansbury playing his mother, I haven't seen it. (laughs) This film goes to show how much can be done with a premise that on paper looks totally implausible. Lawrence Harvey and Frank Sinatra are exceptional, but to me, it's Angela Lansbury who gives the film's best performance as the diabolical mother of Harvey. It is chilling. I would agree, Zeppo M, but I don't know that I agree that it comes off plausible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, and then this is Lacebone. Somehow this film manages to be both anti-communist and anti-McCarthyist, and I respect it. This next one is from Foot. An incredible and disturbing film considering it was released in 62. The first time I watched this, I enjoyed it, but thought it outlandish. Now, after multiple viewings and with some of the curtains pulled back on suppressed details of the Kennedy assassinations and the political maneuverings in the last 10 to 20 years on full display, it reveals itself to be, what's this word? Prescient. Prescient and much closer to the heart of how the system works than I originally could have imagined. Yeah, I'm feeling that too this time around. All right. And the last five-star review is by Des Fido. <laughs> Something I noticed and loved this time. The use of focus is fascinating. And I wondered if they meant the lack of focus or they meant the deep focus mm-hmm. or just focus. Because yeah. there's lots of deep focus. There's lots of deep focus in this, yeah. Even I noticed that. That's not something I typically notice. That's a new <laughs> thing. But I noticed it. Um, so, yeah, there's yeah. a lot. I'm probably thinking that they meant that. Christine gave it half star. My classmate forced us to watch this version instead of the 2004 one. The entire class and I clowned on him the whole time in the Zoom chat. Oh, honey. 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 You should be thanking your classmate. Peter Peter gave it one and a half stars. Okay movie, but weird script. Um, Is it? Well, I mean, the train scene, maybe. maybe yeah, that's a weird. I get it. That part, I would agree with you, Peter Peter. AG gave it one and a half stars. Half a star for the impressive editing in the dream sequences. Alex gave it two stars. This movie is really quite racist. Wow, Alex. Well, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to 1962. Yeah. 
welcome to Frank Sinatra. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Frank Sinatra's family don't put it on. No, no. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I am a little scared. Cut that. Cut that for time. Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> One and a half uh, stars from Fava Bean. Holy <laughs> fuck! This is the most boomer thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I love it. Also, <laughs> oh my god, I just have questions about his name. Obviously, like tied to Silence of the Lambs, which feels like if that's your favorite movie, you might be a little boomer. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> whatever. Okay, you might be a little X. I mean, I don't know if that's a boomer movie, but yeah, it might be an X movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. So. Quinn, I have to ask you, what was your favorite scene or your favorite element in this film? I love the Dutch angles. Uh, They just don't, they don't feel like, I don't, I hate it when Dutch angles get thrown in there. I usually love to see Dutch angles in 60s movies, though, because I think they're just done so, so wonderfully but these are some really skewed angles too and I still Mm -hmm. am not taken aback I'm like yep I get it I like it you know I I consciously see Dutch angles and note what I should note because the angle is canted you know like the chaos the unknown the mystery and whatever but I don't think this is too much even though there's a lot of them so I love those Dutch angles in here and I really like, there's a lot that I love in this. Like I, that last scene with Angela Lansbury and Lawrence Harvey, I adore that. I'm really digging the idea of fear and guilt sort of as um, a motif. And even thinking the end when he is dressed as a priest because, quote, no one will suspect that, that feels like sort of the protector of fear and guilt or the dealer of fear and guilt in a way that could be like my recovering Catholic in me speaking. But, um, I like that. And I, I, I would, I'm interested to go back. I mean, that struck me on this viewing and I'm, I'd like to go back and put more of those pieces together too. Yeah. you? Oh, golly. I do like the sequence with Jocelyn and little Raymond um, with the snake bite. I just like the first time I saw it, I'm like, Oh my God, she's just tripping off her shirt. And she's just, she's just so free with herself and she's on a mission to save him. And, and she does. And I, I don't know. I just think that's that whole sequence is so very sweet. And I also, I like it whenever Frank Sinatra is like, hey, Buster, or, you know, he's like <laughs> getting all rat-a-tatty about it. I just love his just, I don't know, pat, patois. <laughs> um, yeah. I think he's fun. And, um, of course, the brainwashing scenes and the last scene with Angela Lansbury is just so, oh, God, it's so uncomfortable and it's so scary and everything is revealed and it's just... And that just that kiss, um, I guess in the 2004 or whatever version, the incest was, you know, laid on pretty thick, I guess, um, from what I read. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just the suggestion here, but that suggestion um, will never not make me incredibly sad and incredibly 
like shaken, you know, yeah. inside. Yeah. So. And also it's because we only have that kiss too, that I also kind of hearken back to sort of religious stuff and the idea of like Judas's kiss, you know? Yes. I, I don't know. It, even though it's like the reverse of that in the end, but it it's also, they're both, it's not even necessarily the reverse of it because it takes them both out. Yeah. But it's a wrong, it's a wrong kiss. Just like a Judas's kiss is a wrong kiss. So I think, you know, it's an, it's an inappropriate use of a kiss. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but I mean, it's a perversion of a kiss. Right. Also, it's like, I want to know, I want to see what else is out there at the same time that deals with mother-son relationships and sort of the kind of corruption of a mother-son relationship. Because I don't know, I mean, I, I do, I have been thinking about Psycho since we started talking and I'm kind of interested in that because there's something going on at the time. Do you want to um, see if we can find some more movies that touch on the theme of mother-son weird Yeah, you know I'm into that. In the 60s? I'm totally into that. Okay, I, I am too. The world of horror Quinnisode, but the world of horror <laughs> with Mom and Mac. <laughs> <laughs> and also it reminds me of when... Um, Sammy was working at Panera and I wanted you to go in there and say, mother's here. <laughs> Mother would like I think, did we, do, did we do that once? Yes, I think we did. I think it is. Oh my hurt. God. And he, no, he was just like shaking his head like, oh my God. Yeah. Nobody like batted an eye though. Cause... No, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> mother and her friend are here oh god okay well he was already in love with you so it was fine you could have done anything what my sister and my son think you're so pretty that like makes my heart happy (laughs) anyway quint would you recommend this film uh, yeah, I would. I would actually right now more so than I probably would have 10 years ago. But I think I would recommend this because of what one of those reviewers said in that it feels so relevant right now. And in the last, you know, so many years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, I think it's tough. It's a tough movie. I think it's yeah. not it's not an easy watch and I love those movies that you have to kind of try and figure out. But um, yeah, again, like starting kind of starting with those dream sequences, like you're not winning people over easily. And I love that in a movie. (laughs) I mean, I don't want a movie that's so intricate and complex that, you know, it's like completely, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. You probably know, but I, I mean, I don't, need something that's so obtuse like that. But like, I like what he's doing with this and how he lays it out. And I do now I'm thinking more about the editing and how Mm -hmm. just monumental it was really to weave it all together. So I would absolutely recommend this. Would you? Oh, in a heartbeat. Yeah. I love this movie. 
I and I wish I could. I was thinking the whole time we've been talking about doing this movie and watching the movie, and then um, I've probably watched it like <laughs> three times, like you know, in the last couple of weeks. And I'm like, when did I watch this movie the first time? And I don't know if my dad, you know, turned me onto this movie or my stepmom or somebody, but or maybe a friend in high school could. I mean, I have no idea where I found this movie. Yeah. But I it's really important to me. Like I it's probably it's probably in my top 10. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love it so much. I just love I wish I wish I had more of it memorized. I just I just love it. I think it's I don't know why. It just hit me at the right time and every time I watch it I I love it. Yeah. So I confessed this to you um like a couple of weeks ago or so but this movie, my first, um, my first time watching this movie was because, well, was after I watched the remake. So mm-hmm. I watched the remake. I may have watched the remake in the theater though. Um, and I don't know why. Maybe, I don't think I had like a Leah Shriver thing at the time. Maybe a Denzel Washington thing. But, um, I watched the remake and I was like, interesting. And then maybe like, not even soon after, but maybe like six, seven years later, found the original at the library and was like, oh, cool. Watch, started watching it. was like, what the hell? Like, cause the remake is not this. I think the remake was pretty good. I didn't rewatch the remake for this, but the remake isn't what this is. This is something that is so intricate and layered. Um, I don't know. It's not, it doesn't have anything. It's not the same. It's not the same story, but it's also not the same creative vision. And when I saw this, I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is a film, you know? And the remake was a movie. And I don't, I don't even like to distinguish or whatever, you know, between those two terms, but you know what I'm saying? Like, this Mm -hmm. is a piece that, that was a cool idea (laughs) but i want to do this whole podcast all over again because i feel like (laughs) so i just like still don't understand angela lansbury's character you know yeah i actually i think that i know she flipped well she flipped but i mean he's been he's been the assassin since Korea, at least. So it's been years that he's been the assassin, the chosen assassin. Yeah, because the title card in the beginning is 52 specifically. So, but that, I mean, I think she flipped, but I don't think she double flipped. Does she double flip? That's what I'm wondering. I don't think she double flips. So she's still a communist at the end. It's just that she wants to take down those specific, like, like, whatever is fucking, you know, the, like the specific. Yenlo. Men. Which it's probably not even Yenlo. He's just a. No, he's just a puppet. I mean, he's not, he's not important. But, but the other guy, I can't find his name. Arizona or. Bella Zovo. Yeah. He might be, and and Zilkoff might be. We're not film scholars, so it's like... But the only hint that she double flips is in that last speech. And I always saw it as not a double flip, but as more of a, 
my son, I would never have done this had I known it would be you. Or I don't even think she. I don't think that's, maybe that's not even true. Who the fuck? I mean, I don't even, I think the first time I watched it, I'm like, that's not, that's not true. She's a fucking liar. (laughs) Also, it behooved her to have it be someone so close to her. Yes. So it doesn't really make sense that, you know, like, and she already was a bitch, you know. Who's it going to be, Marco? I mean, so, no, of course it had to be him. So I think she's lying. I don't yeah. think, I mean, she's very impassioned and talking about she's going to oh, bring them down. She's lying for his own benefit because at yeah. some level she thinks that he understands and like will completely compute all of this and he'll think that it's better and that it's a worthy cause. That's, that's it. I'm okay with that interpretation. Yeah. I'm okay with that too, but I, I don't think that there's any other evidence. However, that like you say, we're not film scholars and whatnot. Yeah, we're not, but like what, what, where else is the evidence there? that she does a double flip. It's more likely that she's just fucking lying to him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kiss is like a perversion of her love, you know? And that's like maybe the clue to us, the audience that this lady is not, Telling her son the truth. Yeah, and it's also like it's a it negates their mother son relationship. Yeah, it violates it. Said that you know she wouldn't want she wouldn't have wanted him to she wouldn't want she never would have wanted it to be him because that would you know that was like a fuck you to her whatever and also it took his soul. But if you don't see him as your son, you see him as a tool. Well, then you can romantically kiss him yeah you can do whatever the fuck you want yeah and it it is feel like the kiss of death type thing to you and then the only other like issue i have is how did he come out of how did he come out of his programming yeah that's i mean it does i mean i mean again like the like the critic said like even if you if you don't buy the brainwashing because I don't I have no idea how it works like I've been hypnotized like um on a couple of occasions but I mean it's nothing like this obviously um and I don't even I don't know that this kind of thing is possible and you don't have to believe that it's possible to enjoy this movie but you know what are the rules though in terms of this kid's brain. Yeah. I, I want to like, I buy all brainwashing shit just because I I'm interested. I buy it, but I wanted to see it too. And I feel like also his really quick mention of the fact that the men were smoking yak dung, you know, yeah. first I was like, well, are they smoking like LS? Like, what are they, what kind of drug yeah. are they smoking? But then he says yak dung, like, it was a joke. Like he's also making them smoke shit, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I'm I'm interested in like the intricacies of it, but I also buy it. Like I don't need to see it, but I want to, you know, but I, I don't need it. But yeah, yeah. Again, that reviewer said it really is more about the fucking the lies and politics and the relationships with members of your family and how difficult it is. It's like to the oomph degree with this scenario. Well, Quinn, we've had a very long and deep discussion about the Manchurian candidate, but do you think we should shut this one down? Yeah, I do think we should shut it down. Um, Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us, Wohos, for this very special episode featuring my good friend, Quinn. Thanks, Quinn, for joining me. And coming up on the podcast will be episodes involving animals run amok, zombies, and urban legends. And Quinn and I will do our deep dive into mothers and sons in the 1960s. (laughs) I love it. Thanks for joining us, Wohos. We love you and don't go into the basement.